people asking questions of why I stole a motto and I put it on the back of my shirt, just like Tanahashi used to do years, one years ago, maybe 20 years ago, right? And it says, attack for the next generation. And that's something that I actually live by. I believe in attacking for the next generation, just like Tanahashi did. So 20 years ago, when this company, New Japan Pro Wrestling, filed for bankruptcy, they all talk about one man that took New Japan on his back and saved it. And that man's Tanahashi. That man is the reason why a lot of us have jobs, a lot of us are being able to pay for our family, the reason why I've got a fucking roof over my head. And it means the world that I get to be in the room with that man. It means the world that I get to take that same and put it on the back of my shirt because Tanahashi, son, you've attacked. And the next generation is standing right here. It's time now, my friend. I have so much respect for you. I love you. But it's time to lay down your sword. It's time for me to pick up. The next generation stands right here. Welcome to another mini-sode of the Wrestling House Show, covering absolutely everything you need to know about New Japan Pro Wrestling's G1 Climax 29. My name is Chris, and we have finally made it to the end of round-robin block competition in this year's G1 Climax Tournament. Tonight, I will be talking about the final 10 A and B block matches that took place during round 9 of the G1. If you've missed anything from the G1 so far, head over to cnjradio.com for any of these mini-sodes that you might have missed. This is the 10th mini-sode I've done over the past month and a few days, so there's a lot over on cnjradio.com to get you caught up and completely ready for the finals. The blocks were set in such a way heading into the final round that nights 17 and 18 of the G1 Climax Tour each kind of had their own feel. A block was winner-take-all in the main event of Kota Ibushi vs. Kazuchika Okada, but B block had a four-way tie with two more men with a very slim chance of sneaking into the winning spot. I could not wait to watch these shows, so let's not wait any longer and start talking about them. Night 17 of the G1 Climax 29 took place on August 10th, 2019 at 6pm Japanese Standard Time. Both nights of Round 9 took place at the Nippon Budokan in Chiyoda, Tokyo, Japan. The Budokan is a legendary venue, and the men competing for the top spots in each block were trying to cement their own legends and legacies with a trip to the finals. Night 17 was an A-block night, and the first block match up was Lance Archer vs. Evil. Since the only two people who could win the block were Ibushi and Okada, Archer vs. Evil wasn't really about wins or points. For Archer, the match was about trying to end the losing streak he was on and ending the G1 on some sort of a high note. Also, I think he just wanted to take out his frustration on whomever happened to be standing in front of him. For Evil, a win meant jumping into third place in the block and maintaining the status he'd built up in this year's tournament. The match started with Evil attempting to stand up and trade strikes with Archer, but this was a bad idea. Archer was in a rare mood on this night, and he was even more fired up than he usually is. Evil's strikes did pretty much nothing, and a black hole slam from Archer sent Evil outside to regroup. Archer followed Evil, and along the way, Archer smashed every young lion within reach. I'm used to seeing Archer randomly attack the young lions pretty much all the time, but he was doing it for a reason this time. Archer threw all the young lions together, then he shoved Evil into that group, and then Archer hit a moonsault from the apron to the floor, taking down Evil and all of the young lions in the area. Archer is still adding new high-flying moves to his arsenal. It's pretty amazing. 
The crowd was fully behind Archer at this point, and even though Evil managed to put up some offense here and there as the match went on, Archer maintained control for most of the rest of the match. This was Archer's night, and he kept the energy high and exciting as he went from move to move, and pretty much never stopped attacking Evil. In the end, Archer got Evil in the EBD claw after a choke slam and an F5, and Archer pinned Evil for a count of three. Evil has looked good throughout the G1 and ended with 8 points, but the highlight of his tournament was definitely in the previous round when he faced Okada in the main event of the night. Archer has struggled in the G1, but he started and ended with fabulous matches that showed how much of a threat he is and how exciting of a wrestler he can be. This match was pure energy, and seeing Archer rampage like an uncaged animal attacking anything that moved was pretty great. Archer ended the G1 with only 6 points, but I think if he wants to move forward as a singles competitor in New Japan, then the crowds will definitely be supportive of him. Next up was Evil's LIJ tag partner Sonata in his final match of the G1 versus Bad Luck Fale. Sonata has had a very good run in the G1 as far as how he's been perceived and the quality of his matches, but Fale has struggled a bit. Fale went into the final match with 6 points, but 2 of his 3 wins have come within the last few rounds. Fale has won his last few matches with actual wrestling holds, a schoolboy to pin Kenta, and a backslide to pin Tanahashi, and he and Owens have been talking about how great of a technician Bad Luck Fale has become. Fale has become one of the most baffling wrestlers in this year's G1, with his attitude of not really seeming to care, then cheating as hard as humanly possible, and then winning matches with first month wrestling school holds against some of the top guys in the block. So with all that, yeah, Fale vs. Sonata was kind of bonkers. The action in the match started with Chase Owens distracting Sonata and Jado hitting Sonata with a kendo stick. Like Fale has done before, this match was basically a 3-on-1 handicap match. Eventually, Sonata exploded with some fast offense that included him hitting a trio of pescados on Fale, Owens, and Jado in succession. Sonata attempted to capitalize on his momentum, but some ill-advised attempts at slams on Fale stalled Sonata's progress. Sonata started looking for his Skull End Dragon Sleeper, but he had a difficult time wrapping up Fale's huge frame, and Owens pulled the referee out of the ring anyway, so even though Fale did tap, the match would continue since the referee never saw it. It was just like what happened in Fale's match with Kenta. Sonata had had enough of the interference, so he brought back the Paradise Lock late in the match. Sonata was using the Paradise Lock for more than just embarrassment this time though. He locked Jado and Owens each in a paradise lock and just left them in the corner of the ring. They were both trapped and Sonata had no intention of setting them free. Owens and Jado were stuck like that as the match continued. It was fantastic and bizarre watching the match continue as normal with Owens and Jado face down and butt up in the corner of the ring. Sonata went for Skull in, but Fale reversed into a small package and Fale pinned Sonata for a three count. The whole situation at the end of the match was kind of surreal, and I couldn't help but thoroughly enjoy it. This was maybe Fale's most entertaining match in the G1. So Fale and Sonata both ended the G1 with 8 points. That's not bad, especially given how tough A block is, but I do kind of feel like Sonata performed better than his 8 points would indicate. I could say that for a lot of the wrestlers though. Regardless, Fale vs Sonata surprised me with just how much fun it was, and that was two matches in a row during Night 17 that were helping Round 9 to become one of the most entertaining rounds in the whole tournament. And speaking of entertainment, the next match during Night 17 was Zack Sabre Jr. vs Kenta. Kenta started the G1 very strong, but has fallen hard in the last few rounds. 
Sabre started the tournament slowly and has had some ups and downs, but he was looking to finish strong. Sabre and Kenta started the match by grappling and looking for various holds. Neither man found an advantage during this first part of the match, but Kenta did start hearing boos from the crowd when he didn't give Sabre a clean break off the ropes and tried to kick Sabre's head off. Sabre ducked and avoided that particular kick, but Sabre would go on to take tremendous amounts of punishment from Kenta's torrent of kicks and strikes throughout the rest of the match. Interestingly though, it was Sabre who actually started the first striking session of the match. Sabre started hitting Kenta with European uppercuts, but Kenta barely felt them, and one uppercut sent Sabre down to the mat. Kenta punished Sabre with strikes over the next few minutes, and though Sabre did start to look for some more grappling, Kenta seemed to settle in on a game plan that featured strikes and kicks pretty much exclusively. It took a while, but Sabre was able to begin beating Kenta with strikes and turning Kenta's attempts at strikes into submission holds. The first time that happened was when Sabre started going for uppercuts again. Sabre was just getting destroyed by Kenta's uppercuts in response, but Kenta's pattern of returning fire with an uppercut for an uppercut left him open when Sabre turned one of Kenta's uppercuts into his own snapmare followed by a neck twist. That started Sabre's real focus on going after Kenta's upper body with any hold he could find. Sabre masterfully transitioned from hold to hold, and late in the match, Kenta started trying to counter Sabre's attempts with his own crossface that Kenta calls game over. Kenta briefly got the crossface on Sabre, but by drawing Kenta into trading holds, Sabre took control of the match for what was really the first time. Sabre trapped one of Kenta's arms and pulled the other arm back into Sabre's Jim Breaks armbar, and while in the hold, Sabre used his free leg to kick Kenta directly and repeatedly in the back of the head. Kenta had nowhere to go and was forced to verbally submit, ending Kenta's promising start in the G1 Climax with his fifth straight loss. Sabre and Kenta ended the G1 with 8 points each. With the way Sabre started, 8 points feels like an accomplishment, but for Kenta it almost feels like a failure. Kenta was tied for first place until halfway through the tournament, and then he just crashed and burned in the second half. Again though, the competition is incredibly tough and everyone in the block is good, so 4 wins is nothing to be ashamed of. Kenta looked great, and he got some wins over some of New Japan's top stars. He didn't beat Sabre, but he and Sabre put on a great match to end both of their runs of great matches during the past few weeks. I'd put Kenta vs Sabre up there in contention for one of my favorite matches of this year's G1, though yeah, that list is getting really long at this point. The next match up is another one that I will definitely be adding to that list. It was Will Ospreay vs Hiroshi Tanahashi. Not only was this a dream match for fans, but it was a dream match for Ospreay on a personal level. Osprey has looked up to Tanahashi for years, and he'd spoken about how much facing Tanahashi in the G1 means to him. Osprey has even taken one of Tanahashi's old slogans and is using it as his own in honor of Tanahashi. Way back around the time when Tanahashi competed for the short-lived U30 title, which was an openweight title available for anyone under 30 years of age, Tanahashi used the slogan, Attack for the Next Generation. Osprey considers himself to be part of the generation that Tanahashi was fighting for. Osprey has taken the Attack for the Next Generation slogan as his own, and he considers himself to be fighting for the generation that comes after him. So for Osprey, this match was a passing of the torch. At least, that's how Osprey saw it. Tanahashi isn't ready to move on though, and even though it was clear he respects Osprey, Tanahashi was not going to go down without fight. This year's G1 has been tough for both men, so in addition to everything I just said about how this was a clash of generations, both men really wanted this win to prevent ending the G1 on a low note. Osprey's neck has been hurting badly ever since his match with Sonata, and he's been visibly frustrated as his losses have stacked up. 
Tanahashi was at 4-4 four and four going into the match, but for Tanahashi, that's kind of a failure. Tanahashi has also been visibly frustrated, and even though he'll never give up, the look on his face in some of the backstage comments makes me wonder how much longer Tanahashi wants to compete if he can't compete at the highest level like he's used to. Don't get me wrong, I think Tanahashi's great, and he can absolutely compete as one of the best in New Japan, but it feels like Tanahashi himself is feeling the pressure of the losses he suffered. Tanahashi and Osprey are both hard on themselves when they lose, and neither one of them would be okay with losing during night 17 of the G1 Climax. The match started with a feeling out process that had Osprey trying to match Tanahashi in strength and leverage. Osprey did well, but Tanahashi never really budged. Tanahashi revealed his game plan first when he started to go after Osprey's knee very early in the match. I think it was a huge sign of respect that Tanahashi focused on Osprey's knee rather than going after his already injured neck. Everyone else has attacked Osprey's neck, and I'm pretty sure Tanahashi is the first person in the G1 to not attack that very obvious and dangerous target. Tanahashi's attack was thorough, and Osprey seemed hobbled at times. Osprey started to do better in the match when he created some distance and hit some dives, but many of the dives further aggravated Osprey's knee, even when Osprey simply landed on his feet. Another effect of Tanahashi going after Osprey's knee was that Osprey's kicks were nearly non-existent in the match. It wasn't until very late in the match that Osprey hit any kicks, and even then he only hit a few. When you compare that with the countless kicks that he usually throws, you could see the effectiveness of Tanahashi's attacks. Tanahashi also had some great counters for Osprey's signature moves. At different points in the match, Tanahashi turned the Ozcutter and Stormbreaker into variations of a sling blade. To Osprey's credit though, he was able to turn an attempt at a sling blade from Tanahashi into a Spanish fly. Osprey was also able to roll through as Tanahashi hit his high fly flow frog splash, and that led directly to a hook kick, the hidden blade, and Stormbreaker from Osprey. And with that, Will Osprey pinned Hiroshi Tanahashi. As you can imagine, the crowd was pretty loud by that point, and the moment the bell sounded felt like a huge moment in both men's careers. I know I said that about Ibushi beating Tanahashi too, but I think both of those moments are a big deal. For Osprey, you could see the elation and emotion in his face. This was one of those rare moments in pro wrestling where you're going to vividly remember how you felt watching it happen. I know I will. I might not remember that the pinfall led to both men ending the G1 with 8 points, but I will remember sitting up and holding my breath as the final sequences of the match unfolded. I think I'll also remember the main event of the night. It was finally time for Kota Ibushi vs Kazuchika Okada, and the match was fantastic. This was technically the only match of the night that was still part of the tournament since it was winner take all, and Kota Ibushi was fighting to catch up to the near-perfect Kazuchika Okada. Ibushi went into the match with 12 points, and Okada had 14. A win for Ibushi meant a tie in the standings, but since Ibushi would have a win over Okada, Ibushi would have the tiebreaker and would win a block. On the other hand, Okada could still win the block if he and Ibushi went to a draw. So really, Okada could just survive until the 30-minute time limit ran out, and he would still win the block. That put most of the pressure on Ibushi in this pivotal match. Abushi never really shows that he's feeling pressure though, and for a brief moment I even saw a very slight smirk on his face as the ring announcer was finishing the introductions. And I've already talked on a previous minisode about how Okada is always the picture of calm and cool in every match he has, so neither man seems shaken by the stakes in the match. The match started with both men trading strikes, but Okada got an early advantage when he dropped Kikabushi off the top rope and down to the floor. Okada followed up with a DDT on the floor, and that put Ibushi in an uphill battle very early in the match. Okada didn't look like he was stalling, but back in the ring he did take his time dealing with Ibushi. 
I don't think Okada was hoping to push the match to a draw, but at the same time, I'm sure it was in the back of his head that if time did run out, he would still win. Okada was in the driver's seat, and Ibushi needed to start putting together some offense quickly to start chipping away at the notoriously difficult to defeat IWGP heavyweight champion. Abushi did start hitting some dives and combinations of kicks and strikes, but in between all of his offense, Abushi was still taking damage. Abushi's first really big push came when he hit Okada with a Hurricane Rana off the top rope and followed that up with a sit-out powerbomb. Okada had to reach for the ropes to break the pin attempt, and for the first time, Okada really seemed like he was in a bit of trouble. Okada started looking for some of his signature moves like Rainmaker and the Tombstone Piledriver, but Abushi avoided them at the cost of taking more damage from Okada's follow-ups. Abushi's ankle was giving him problems again by this point, and even though Abushi hit a gruesome package pile driver, he couldn't cover Okada because of the pain in his own ankle. The match was entering its final stages by then, and both men were swinging for the fences with their biggest and best moves. Okada struck first by hitting a pair of rainmakers, but Abushi survived. Abushi started looking for his kamigoye knee strike, but Okada lunged forward and grabbed Abushi's leg in a sign of desperate defense. Okada was in trouble. Okada tried to take Abushi down with a Hurricane Rana, but Abushi countered the attempt into a huge powerbomb that had Okada nearly out for three. Okada kept getting up though, but it felt like the end was near. Okada blocked some of Abushi's surging offense as the match neared the 25 minute mark, and for Okada, defense felt like the best option at this point. He only needed to last for about five more minutes. Abushi was relentless though, and he hit Kamigoye and went for the cover. Okada barely kicked out, but Ibushi immediately hit a second Kamigoye knee strike, and Kota Ibushi pinned Kazuchika Okada. Ibushi rose to tie Okada's 14 points, and Ibushi won A block with a tiebreaker. This was a fantastic match, and it was a very fitting way to end the A block competition. After the match, Okada rolled out of the ring and was helped to the back, but you could see the joy and gratitude on Ibushi's face. Red Shoes Uno went over to help Ibushi up off the mat, and I could see Ibushi hold on to Red Shoes' hand like he was shaking it. Ibushi looked up like he was thanking Red Shoes, but Red Shoes just shook his head and waved his finger. To me, that whole interaction looked like Red Shoes was waving off Ibushi's gratitude and telling Ibushi that this was his moment. And it was a great moment to see. Ibushi is great, and he really seems like a good and humble person. In his closing remarks to the crowd, he thanked everyone for supporting him, he thanked all the wrestlers in the back for fighting him, and he promised to do his best and not let anyone down as he went on to win the finals. I was super happy in that moment because, yeah, I had Ibushi as one of my hopeful picks to win the block, and whoever wins B block, I hope Ibushi beats them. There would not be long to wait to figure out who Ibushi's opponent would be though. The final night of B-Block action happened the very next night on August 11th, 2019 at 6pm Japanese Standard Time. The show emanated once again from the legendary Nippon Budokan, and opposed to the final night of A-Block where there was only one match to determine a winner, B-Block had multiple matches with tournament implications. The first block match of night 18 was Jeff Cobb vs. Toriyano. Jeff Cobb went into the match with 6 points and had been mathematically eliminated before the night began, but Yano had 8 points and could jump up into a 5-way tie for the top of the block with a win over Cobb. However, even though it would have been close, the tiebreaker math made it impossible for Yano to win the block, even if everyone else in the tie lost or their matches ended in no contest or countouts. So really, Toru Yano versus Jeff Cobb was just all about fun. As the match started and Yano removed his shirt, there was something very strange going on in Yano's pants. His midsection looked unusually lumpy, so referee Marty Asami went to check things out. 
Asami pulled three full rolls of tape from the front of Yano's pants. Then when Yano turned around, Asami discovered two more rolls. Yano wanted to start the match fairly, so he told Asami to check Jeff Cobb for any tape or foreign objects in his singlet. Asami did a cursory check of the front of Cobb's singlet and called for the two men to start the match, but Yano wanted Asami to check the back of Cobb's gear. Cobb voluntarily turned around so he could be patted down, and Yano quickly caught Cobb in a surprise schoolboy. I halfway thought the match was over right there, and I think I would have been fine with that. It was a genius setup by Yano, and he deserved some recognition for it. The match went on though, and so did the shenanigans. Yano followed up by tucking Cobb's arms down his own singlet, and Yano tried another schoolboy with Cobb's arms completely trapped. That didn't work either, so Yano decided to take a walk. Yano went outside, but Cobb would not follow. Frustrated, Yano started removing one of the turnbuckle pads while he was still outside the ring. As Cobb ran over to stop him, which he was too late to do, Yano removed a second turnbuckle pad from another corner. Yano tried to use the confusion to surprise Cobb, but Yano ended up running into the exposed turnbuckles himself and suffered a suplex and a power slam that ended the match. Cobb pinned Yano and rose up to 8 points in the tournament. 4 wins for Cobb in his first G1 isn't bad, and I think this match against Yano was a very good way to end his run. Cobb was impressive throughout the G1, and it looked like he was having fun despite the grueling schedule and tough matches. This match was also a nice and light way to start the block action for the night. The matches from here were sure to get more tense as wins mattered more than ever in most of the matches that followed. Unfortunately for the men in the second block match of the night, the points didn't matter so much. It was Tai Chi with 6 points versus Tomohiro Ishii with 8. Even though Ishii could join the tie at the top of the block if he reached 10 points, just like Yano, there was no scenario where Ishii could win in a tiebreaker. So this match was mostly about both men trying to finish strong, but this was also a renewal of a rivalry. Ishii took the never openweight title from Tai Chi at Dominion earlier this year, and it seemed like Tai Chi wanted to prove that his loss to Ishii back at the beginning of June would not happen again. Tai Chi started this match very strong right at the opening bell. Tai Chi ran at Ishii and attacked him with kicks and strikes. Tai Chi had the upper hand from the start, and Ishii had to work to recover and try to mount some offense of his own. This was a unique match for Tai Chi. It was unique because he didn't cheat at all. Not once did Tai Chi go for any weapons or trickery. And even the lovely Miho Abe and Yoshinobu Kanemaru never got involved. Miho and Kanemaru were just there to watch Tai Chi have a great strong style match with one of the toughest men in New Japan. Even though I've been entertained by Tai Chi throughout the G1, I think this was easily his best match. He met Ishii strike for strike, and Tai Chi even surpassed Ishii on numerous occasions. Tai Chi strung together some great combinations of kicks and lariats, and though Ishii got some huge hits as well, Tai Chi looked fantastic as he pushed through and continued to dominate most of this match. I've said before how Tai Chi is really good when he decides to wrestle, and he apparently decided that he wanted to wrestle and win tonight. He did both of those things as he beat Ishii down and pinned Ishii after his Black Mephisto air raid crash. So Taichi moved up to 8 points in the G1 alongside Ishii, Yano, and Cobb. Taichi might have struggled with some tough losses in the tournament, but I think most people will remember best how he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ishii and came out a convincing winner. For his part, Ishii might have lost his last match and ended with a sub-50% win-loss record, but his matches were some of the most consistently entertaining throughout the G1. Off the top of my head, I can't think of one of his matches that I thought was just okay. He was always one of the highlights of any night. The third B-block match of the night was the first where the points really mattered. 
It was a rematch of the IWGP US title match from the final night of the Super Junior Tournament, Juice Robinson versus John Moxley. Juice has been waiting for his chance to get back at Moxley for the beating Moxley gave him more than a month ago, and Juice also had the bonus opportunity of taking away any chance Moxley had of winning B-Block. Juice had 6 points going into the match and was already eliminated. Moxley had 10 points and was tied at the top of the block. For Moxley to win the block though, not only did he need to beat Juice, but he needed Goto to lose his match against Shingo, and he needed Naito to win in the main event. That was the only sure path to victory for Moxley. A loss for Moxley meant elimination since he would have to rely on Goto losing in the main event of Naito vs. White somehow going to a double countout to remain tied at 10 points. But Goto would win in a 4-way tie scenario since he'd already beaten 2 out of the 3 men he'd be tied with. So basically, Moxley needed 2 points and some luck. As much as Moxley needed the points though, the match actually started pretty calmly. Juice and Moxley didn't start as fast as I expected them to. From Juice's side, that was probably because he knew his knee was in bad shape before the match even started. In their tag preview the night before, Moxley had made a point to aggressively attack Juice's knee, going so far as to hit a chop block and more after the tag match was over. Juice looked okay to start this tournament match with Moxley, but a simple ordinary landing early in the match caused Juice to flinch in pain. Moxley saw that and he attacked. Moxley focused on Juice's knee for pretty much the rest of the match. Anytime Juice would start to build momentum and go into a mode where he was hitting some heavy strikes, all Moxley had to do was to go low and hit Juice in the knee. That would stop Juice's momentum every time. Juice was able to avoid too much brawling for Moxley, which was good. Juice even put a table back under the ring after Moxley had brought it out. The crowd appreciated that, and so did I. Late in the match, Moxley applied a step over toe hold, and instead of completing an STF with a face lock, Moxley grabbed Juice's head in a rear naked choke. Juice was fading, and Red Shoes was close to calling the match due to not getting any response from Juice. Red Shoes decided to check Juice by dropping his arm three times, but on the third drop, Juice grabbed Red Shoes' pants and prevented him from ending the match. Moxley wasn't looking though. Moxley just felt Juice's arm fall for the third time, so Moxley thought he'd won. Moxley released the hold voluntarily and started celebrating, and when Red Shoes explained what had happened, Moxley was furious. Moxley spent a long time arguing with Red Shoes, but he still managed to hit a knee trembler on Juice. Juice looked like he was out, but Moxley didn't go for the cover. Moxley was still pissed, and he left the ring and started pulling out chairs and a table. Moxley took too long, so Juice was able to recover and hit Moxley with a combination of punches back in the ring. Juice then hit Pulp Friction and pinned John Moxley, eliminating the man who had started his first G1 with 5 wins in a row. Juice ended the G1 with 8 points, which is under what I thought he would get, but at least he got a measure of revenge on Moxley. Juice could also be in line for a US title rematch with that victory. I thought this was a good match. I think I might have wanted to see Juice win more definitively over Moxley, but the way this match ended leaves it open for a higher profile match if Juice does get a title rematch. Juice seemed to struggle in the G1 at times, but his matches were always entertaining. Moxley was also entertaining throughout, even if the great start he built did come crashing down about halfway through the tournament. Moxley was so good at planning out his method of attack for each opponent, but I think that first loss to Yano threw him off so bad that he couldn't think straight for the remainder of his matches, or something like that. The method of attack for the next to last match of the night was easy to think about for both men involved though. I think they each had the plan to hit their opponent harder and more often than they got hit themselves. It was Shingo Takagi versus Hiroki Goto, 
and even though the points mattered to Goto in this match, interestingly, there could not be an immediate elimination regardless of who won. Shingo had 6 points going in, so he was already eliminated, but Goto had 10 points and was in a 4-way tie for the top of the block. If Goto beat Shingo, then he'd move up to 12 points and hold the single top spot in B block. Naito vs. Jay White was up next, and they both had 10 points, just like Goto. So if Goto moved up to 12, but Naito beat White, then Goto would lose in a tiebreaker since Naito already defeated Goto. But if White beat Naito, then Goto would win since Goto had already beaten White. And if the main event went to a draw, then Goto would still win. If Goto lost Shingo and stayed at 10 points, then he'd need the main event to end in a countout or no contest. If White and Naito somehow both ended their final match with no more points, then Goto would win in a four-way tie with them and Moxley. Any other scenario meant a loss for Goto. So again, long story short, Goto still had a chance no matter what happened with Shingo, but a win set him up in the best position possible. Shingo didn't want to end his first G1 with only 6 points though, and he started the match very strong. The strikes from both men were heavy right from the start, but Shingo got the better of Goto early in the match. Goto started to fight back, so Shingo left the ring and called for Goto to join him. Goto would not, so Shingo had to get back into the ring and continue the fight. Goto hit a hanging neckbreaker out of the corner on Shingo, and that started a lengthy segment of domination for Goto. Minutes later though, Shingo and Goto started trading strikes and slams more evenly, and the intensity of the match picked up with every blow. Really, kind of like in Shingo's match against Ishii in the previous round, the best thing I can say about this match is that you need to see it. Shingo has been fun to watch throughout the entire tournament, but his final two matches have been the most entertaining. It's kind of amazing how hard these guys can hit each other and still come back for more over and over again. This match against Goto had one of the hardest double clothesline attempts I've seen, and it sent Goto flying upon impact. As the match neared its finish, Shingo was pulling ahead and added more of his signature moves in between his strikes. Shingo was finally able to hit Last of the Dragon, and Shingo ended his first G1 with a victory over Hiroki Goto and 8 points total. Shingo more than proved that he can hang in the heavyweight division, and I look forward to seeing him fight in the heavyweight division as he moves forward in New Japan. For Goto, this was a tough loss, but he's had a solid tournament. It was rough at times for him, but he surged back towards the end, and he's not completely out of the tournament yet. Goto needs a miracle though, and neither man in the main event would be willing to give him one. The main event of the night was Jay White, accompanied as always by Gato, versus the IWGP Intercontinental Champion Tetsuya Naito. Both men had 10 points going into the match, so the winner of the match would be the winner of the block. Chris Charlton explained that if the match were to go to a time limit draw, then there would be extra time to determine a winner. And as I explained, in the event of a no contest or double countout, then Goto would win. The stakes were high, and Jay White was pumped up and ready to fulfill his promise of winning six matches in a row, but Naito, as always, was tranquilo. Both men took their time at the beginning of the match. Naito once again took a long time removing all his entrance gear, but it didn't seem to bother White. White waited patiently in the corner, then when the match started, White rolled out of the ring. The crowd booed White as he smiled at ringside. White eventually got back into the ring, only to leave again right away. Naito ran towards the ropes, which caused White and Gato to flinch, but Naito, as usual, only did that so he could slide into his tranquilo pose in the middle of the ring. That got White to enter the ring and chase Naito, but that's when Naito chose to leave the ring himself. White was starting to get hot, so Naito rolled back in, and then rolled back out. That finally got White to follow Naito out, 
and an attempted distraction from Gato backfired and allowed Naito to throw White into the barricade. Finally, minutes into the match, first contact had happened. From there, the match went back and forth for a while. The match was fought mostly fairly for a while, and both men were targeting their opponent's neck. Naito got an early advantage, but White responded by slamming Naito head and neck first down into the apron, then he followed up by running Naito into the barricade. White repeatedly ran Naito into the barricade and the side of the ring, but back in the ring, Red Shoes wouldn't count when White went for the cover. White has had issues with Red Shoes not counting directly after illegal moves, so I think White was doing this mostly just so he could complain some more. White continued attacking Naito though, but Naito surged back into control. That control, however, was brief. Naito and White started trading some big moves in extended sequences, and the intensity in the match was picking up. White began to punish Naito with a lot of slams in quick succession, and when Naito looked like he might start another comeback, White pulled Red Shoes into Naito, knocking both men down. Gato tried to interfere, but Naito dealt with Gato with a low blow. The distraction helped White though, and White started looking for Blade Runner after preventing a possible Destino by playing Possum. Naito hit Destino before White found Blade Runner, but one Destino wouldn't be enough to put White away. Naito tried for another, but after a very long sequence of counter after counter, White hit Blade Runner. One Blade Runner wasn't enough, but a second did the trick, and Jay White pinned Tetsuya Naito to win B-Block. The man I wanted to win the block the least had won. I sort of feel like I caused this by saying what I said on the last minisode. In a way, I think my way of thinking did help contribute to White's win. The boos he got at Budokan were extremely loud, probably louder than anyone else in either block. White probably is the top bad guy in New Japan. Other heels like Taichi and Lance Archer and even Zack Sabre Jr. will get cheered when they do amazing things, but White makes it a point to aggravate people with how he wins matches. By playing possum and cutting his opponent's momentum short all the time, it makes you want to see him lose. Then when he does wrestle really well, it just aggravates you even more because you're reminded of how good he is and how he's making a conscious decision to be a huge jerk. Plus, he's probably beating up a guy you really like. But as annoyed as I was seeing Jay White win six in a row and preventing us from seeing Naito chase his dream of being a double champ, I have to say that this was a great match. I think Okada vs. Ibushi was a better block finale, but Naito vs. White was still great. And the whole G1 tournament has been great. Everyone brought their best in the final two nights of block action, and even though it's been a long road trying to keep up and document so many shows over the past month, I've seen a ton of great matches. And there's still one more night to go with one more match to decide the winner of the whole thing. Kota Ibushi vs. Jay White is sure to be great. I think Naito vs. Ibushi would also have been great, but we did see that match at Dominion, so I can't be too mad about White making it to the finals. Just as long as he does not beat Ibushi. And hopefully I didn't just jinx myself by saying that. But hey, you'll be finding out along with me as I discuss the final night of the G1 Climax 29 on another minisode, which you'll be able to find on cnjradio.com, the home of the Wrestling House Show and the home of the family of CNJ Radio Podcasts. Check out cnjradio.com to listen to any of these minisodes you might have missed and to get a quick recap of every night of the G1, including the tag previews in my written recaps and reviews. There will also be a new monthly-ish WWE-centric episode coming soon with myself and Joey, but before that will be my Best of the G1 Climax 29 minisode. Possible additions to that list from Round 9 are, well, a lot of matches. I think a lot of people had their best matches in the final round, so I'm going to have to make some tough cuts to get that list down to a manageable length, 
so you'll be able to watch all of those matches on njpwworld.com without spending every waking moment watching New Japan like I've been doing. And if you go to cnjradio.com, you can find our Facebook and Twitter at House Show, so you can interact with us and let us know which matches you've seen and loved or which ones you want to see based on my reactions. So yeah, there's a ton of stuff going on, and it'll all eventually be on cnjradio.com. This episode has gone on long enough, though, so I will talk to you next time. Bye. I tried as hard as I possibly could. I went as far as I possibly could. At the end of the day, the mistakes I made are on me. And I didn't win the G1. I'm leaving Tokyo with my head held high. And what we got now, what we got now, this is called a baseline. This is what I can do. This is our starting off point. This is rock bottom. From here, we just get better. We just get stronger. We just get smarter. We just get more fucking dangerous.